Now, as I said, we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4 today. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Amos, God's depicted as this ravenous and vengeful lion who was circling the nations in judgment. Now, each of the nations come to see their own downfall as a result of sin, uh, but all the while, this prowling lion is moving from nation to nation to nation with one particular nation his eyes fixed upon. Now, that was Israel. Now, Israel has drawn his gaze for a number of reasons, but it ultimately comes back to the fact that they are, they're given an opportunity and several opportunities to repent and turn back to God. Now, we find that the time of repentance is drawing to a close. The roar of the lion has gone out. It echoes even through the bones of every Israelite because they know that God is not pleased with them. Now, today we're going to be looking at, again, chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Amos, and you'll find much the same thing as before. This time, though, the prophet looks at it from a slightly different vantage point, a different facet of the diamond, if you will. Indeed, God is coming to judge. There is no escaping this reality. Incredible hardship devastation, and more are coming their way whether or not they repent. Uh, Hear that. Whether or not they repent, they are still going to face these things. And yet the prophet still calls them to repent. Now, the reason for this is the same reason that we tell our loved ones that they need to repent. One day, every man, woman, and child must, and hear me, must stand before their maker. Every individual must give an account. And so Amos calls Israel to repentance because they are ultimately being summoned before the presence of their God. Now, the tragedy in this book is that these people are a people who are incredibly deceived. In every meaningful way, they are people who follow after lies. And what's more than this is that they actually believe the lies. They are blinded. And just like anyone else who is deceived, they don't know that they are deceived. Now, that's the worst part about being deceived, isn't it? You don't know you're being deceived. Now, turn with me, Amos chapter 3. We're going to start to unpack what that looks like and what it looks like, especially for one who is deceived. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to here is that Israel is this unique nation among all the people of the earth simply because God has called them out to be his people. They enjoy these unique blessings that are given to them on the basis of God's covenant with them. And yet, as a result of that, they are also bound to unique stipulations or standards that nobody else is. In other words, God requires more of Israel simply because he has made covenants with them. He has established a relationship with these people. He has not only revealed himself to them, he has been a savior, he has been a redeemer and a revealer every step of the way. And then we see this right in verse 1 here. Now notice that God focuses on the fact that he has brought them out of bondage under the Egyptians, and then he's brought them into the promised land here. This is really just a summary statement to speak of all God's redemptive work up until this point. God is reminding them most notably of their origins, but more importantly, he's bringing them back to square one to show them simply they are a people only because God has set his unique covenantal love upon them. In other words, they are only a people because God has made them a people. Every moment they have been threatened by outside forces, God has stood in the gap and preserved them. He's saying everything that you have comes from my hand. 
Every time they come under the threat of extinction even, God takes that and then he turns that to be a blessing to these people. Now, verse 2 continues in this same thing, but the aspect being shown here is actually speaking to the covenant that God made with them itself. And so on one hand, you find that God is this, uh, he's reminding them of the times he's been a savior to them, a redeemer. And on, on the other hand, he's reminding them of the unique covenant in which he has revealed himself to them. He says, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Now here God is speaking to that intimate knowledge he has of his own people. He has made it his purpose to set his love upon them in a way that no one else benefits from. Now this is speaking towards God's electing love on them. They have done nothing worthy of God causing to choose them. They have done nothing good in and of themselves. It is pure, unbridled, sovereign grace. Yet he is also reminding them of that covenant that he made with Abraham. And he's saying, essentially, that the fulfillment of those promises is bound up in them. Now, a very large part of that fulfillment is that he's given them the prophets, he's given them the priests and the kings, and these are all people that are designed to draw this nation to walk with God in faithfulness to the covenant. This is something that no other people had. Pagan nations had no understanding of how they could please their own gods. They had no understanding what their gods even wanted, let alone the God of this universe, But Israel actually has this. In all of it, God is simply reminding Israel that they have enjoyed the benefits and the blessings of his covenant with them in a way that no one else has. In other words, he is saying, I have given you much, and much will be required of you. Now, verse 2 illustrates this principle exceedingly clearly for us. I want you to look down. Notice that he says, You only, that is you alone, have I known among all the families of the earth. Nobody else has this, Israel. Therefore, that is for this reason, I will punish you for your wrongdoing. Their intimate, unique relationship with God is the very basis for which he punishes them. The reason for this is incredibly simple. They know God. They know God, and therefore they know better. Now, suffice it to stay, the church stands in the exact same position. Christians as a whole enjoy the unique relationship with God through Christ that nobody else on the face of this planet enjoys. We know that God has saved us. We know that God is preserving us, that he is building us into a people that will one day inherit his kingdom. We likewise have the fullness of the scriptures revealed to us for our children and for ourselves. And then think of it in terms of missio. We are a church that highly values the preaching and the teaching of the word. And so in a word, all of you will be more accountable for that very thing. Now, we tend to hear that and treat it rather flippantly, don't we? But the reality is that we have a greater burden on us. We have a greater responsibility on us to walk with our God. Now, the sobering reality is that you and I, we could sit in the pews each week with no intention of becoming a godlier man or woman. You could come to be filled with the knowledge of Scripture and love every bit of it. You can learn to your heart's content. You could learn things that you have never heard of before. But all that will do in the end is make you more responsible before God. Now, the reason for this is that you will know better you will have a knowledge that others do not have. 
Now again, Amos illustrates this rather wonderfully here with Israel. I want you to know at the heart of it, they are a people who are ever hearing the word of God and yet never doing. And yet all the while, they have no clue why they're being judged. And so as a result, look down in verse 3. I'm going to show you how he's doing this, but he's taking them then. Because they don't understand, they have no clue why they're being judged, he's going to show them a relationship of cause and effect, which should be rather obvious to them. Now, he's going to ask a series of rhetorical questions here, and all these are doing is, is just designed to get them to think beyond the obvious answer. Rhetorical questions have an obvious answer. And so he's leading them by the hand because he wants to show them specifically, your sin has consequences, and the consequence to that is God's judgment. But behind each and every question here is an implied application to the nation of Israel. So notice in verse 3, what does the prophet ask? Two, do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Well, the obvious answer is no, isn't it? But again, there's an implication to how this applies to Israel. God has called Israel to walk with them or to him. And yet they have long abandoned that path. They have agreed to meet in a covenant, and they no longer walk with their God. In verse 4, he asks, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Again, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. But the implication is that God has cornered his prey, and that prey is Israel. Israel finds herself in the inescapable clutches of that great and ferocious lion. Verse 5, birds are not caught unless there is a bait to lure them into the trap. In the same manner, a trap that's set upon the ground does not spring unless something triggers it. Thus, Israel has taken the bait of sin, and they are ensnared in judgment of God. Then in verses 6 through 7, notice the prophet gives a series of connected events, and this makes everything all the more frightful for Israel because he is talking about them. People don't tremble in terror unless a trumpet has sounded a warning. Evil does not befall a city unless God has caused it to happen. Certainly, the Lord God does not do anything unless he reveals his secret plan to his servants, the prophets. In every single step of the way, they have gotten warning after warning after warning, and yet they ignored it. In all of it, he's just driving them. He's leading them by the hand to the inextricable reality of God's judgment. All he's doing is showing that your sin has consequences, Israel. And yet at the same time, they knew all of these consequences would come. None of this was a secret. God essentially shouted it from the rooftops. He made it very clear in his covenant to them. But they would not repent. And so all they did was rationalize everything away. They ignored every warning given to them, and so they are left without excuse. The judgment roar of the lion has gone forth. See this in verse 8. Again, the lion is coming to kill. The lion is coming to kill. And so he asks one more rhetorical question of them. Who will not fear? Yahweh has spoken. Who will not fear, Israel? And then here he is speaking of himself. Who can do anything but prophecy? 
God sent Amos to the stiff-necked people who are on a fast track to judgment because they presume all along that they are in God's good graces. Now, we know they presume this because we just spent six verses looking at how they have no understanding that they're going to be judged for their sins. He has to show them that, hey, sin has consequences, guys. And for all their knowledge of God, they fall incredibly short on this one vital but most basic of truths. All the while, God gives them warnings. He says consequences will come of it. And yet they never stopped to think if they were the ones that the warnings were intended for. They always thought they were for somebody else. Now, this is a frightening thing if we are honest, and I mean brutally honest, because how often do you and I think of the consequences to our sins, especially in the moment of temptation? Especially when we think of these as little sins. How often do we think that our lives one day will come and form a trap for us? That our excuses will one day ensnare us? Amos tells us this is a mark of one who is deceived. He says everything has a cause and effect, and yet we fool ourselves time and again to think that we do not, or we will not face the same things. We will not see consequences to sin. We do that because we presume our sin really isn't all that offensive and flagrant before a holy and just God. Again, that's the first sign of someone who's deceived. And now we come to the second sign that they are blind to their own true state. Now, you're going to notice all of these hinge off of one another. Take a look with me at verse 9. I want you to see how the prophet simply unfolds this reality for them, but he does so in an incredibly ironic fashion. He brings these two people as character witnesses against Israel. It's the people of Ashdod. They are the Philistines and then also the Egyptians. And so you might be wondering, why are these guys witnesses against Israel? Well, there are two reasons why the Lord would call this, these pagan nations to stand as a witness against Israel. And the first is that in keeping with the law of Moses, you must have two verifiable witnesses that as people who have testified against you. The Philistines and the Egyptians will stand as these witnesses. But again, that doesn't answer quite why. But however, notice they're going to stand on the mountains of Samaria and they're going to see great panic and oppression within Israel's midst. Now here he's not speaking of the judgment that is to come. They're going to witness that too. But right here, he's actually speaking about how they will bite and devour one another. They're going to oppress their own people. In other words, Egypt and Philistia are going to stand and verify the charges against Israel because they're going to witness it all unfold. They're going to see the people tear one another apart. And we know this from verse 10. Again, what an indictment against these people. He says, Israel, you don't even know how to do what's right. Think if that's what your epitaph was. If that's what was on your tombstone, you don't even know what is right. Now, the word for right here is actually better translated from the Hebrew as straight. What he's saying here is that all of their ways are crooked. Well, how so? Well, the reason he gives here in verse 10 is that they amass wealth by oppressing their own people. Notice that they store it in their citadels. They don't even spend it. They just want to pile it up one on top of another so they have these massive hordes of treasure. And these two pagan countries, by the way, again, they're commanded to stand and verify this. 
Now, the reason, the second reason we're going to get into here, they're going to stand as witness, is that these pagan nations once oppressed Israel. So who better to judge? Who better to judge? God delivered Israel from their hands. He did so by punishing these nations severely. And so that act of God's judgment on them will stand as a testimony to Israel's own unfaithfulness. The implication here is that Israel is actually in a far worse state than Egypt and the Philistines were. Just, again, think of, wrap your mind around that. Think of all the Egyptians did to oppress the Israelites. God says, Israel, you are worse. Much like Sodom and Gomorrah, these two nations are going to be raised to judge Israel. Now, this would have shocked them to their core. The Israelites were God's people. They were fundamentally better than all the pagan nations around them, are they not? And yet here we find these nations, bad as they were, are not as bad as Israel. Again, that gives a pretty harsh statement against them. Think about it. If Egypt and the Philistines are going to stand as a witness against you, you've pretty much hit rock bottom. Think of the worst person you can think of in your life. And I, I, I mean that in a kind way, but think of the person that you think their life is altogether messed up. What he's saying is essentially that if you were Israel, they would stand as a judge against you. Again, think of the people in your own life that you've maybe watched go into sin or apostasy. If you're the one who deceives yourself, these people are going to be a witness against you. I think of any number of people disciplined out of the church, or maybe they fled because they didn't want to deal with sin. And if you've been part of the church, you've seen that. But you were deceived if you live the same life that they lived, and you think that that will not come back against you. Have you looked at the trajectory of their life? Have you looked at where they once stood and where they are now? And then have you asked yourself the simple question, am I on the same path? Am I going the same way? Are the pet sins that I am nursing and coddling right now any different than the ones that they nursed and coddled? Will your life be a cautionary tale instead of one of faithfulness? That's what Israel was. The Philistines, the Egyptians, are going to stand as a witness against Israel and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Israel, that nation that should be utterly different from every other pagan nation, was in fact much, much worse. And so the old oppressor stands to witness against the new oppressor, and they will be judged. Now notice in verse 11 here, Again, he says, therefore, that is, as a result of Israel's oppression, they looted and pillaged and plundered their own people. An enemy will come in and loot and plunder them. Now, Israel doesn't know it quite yet, but that enemy will be Assyria. The judgment pronounced on them here is actually pretty straightforward, but it it just simply reveals the principle that that which they have sown will be that which they reap. They have sown nothing but oppression. They shall be oppressed. They have pillaged and looted, and so they shall be pillaged and looted. They have sold their brothers and sisters into slavery. They've taken advantage of them at every single point, 
And so the same exact thing will happen to them. In every conceivable way, they will meet the same fate they foisted upon somebody else. Now, the passage is just simply dripping with irony at this point. Now, the reason for that is they still don't get it. They still don't get it. Everything's fine in their minds. Amos is just this buzzkill of a prophet. Despite all the wickedness they've been caught in, despite the fact that God has said that you are worse than these pagan nations, Israel, despite that he says, I'm coming like a lion to devour you, they still don't get it. So the pronouncement of judgment becomes all the more terrifying in verse 12. Look at your Bibles with me. Look at what he says. Thus says the Lord. It is a formal declaration. Just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. You have an incredibly bleak picture of judgment here. The deafening roar of the lion is no more. Now he is just simply ripping them limb from limb in the brutal slaughter of his wrath. At the same time, God likens himself to a shepherd. He simply cannot contain himself. He has to save some part of it to be faithful to his covenant. And so the only thing he's going to be able to do is to rip fragments from the mouth of the lion. And notice the description here. It's, it's utterly brutal. He's only going to save maybe a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, not even a full ear. But at the same time, this is what makes this passage so grotesquely beautiful. Because what he's saying, you have this so, this sober depiction of judgment within the household of God. Only a portion is going to be saved. The bloodied fragments of the body only serve to show that they were destroyed. The corner of the fabric from the bed and the couch, maybe this once beautifully ornate and costly thing to make shall be in tatters. And yet a remnant will be spared. God will preserve a remnant. Judgment is still going to come. That's not going away. Pain, agony, misery is going to be multiplied to them. And yet God himself will rip a remnant from the mouth of the lion to keep them preserved and safe in his grace. But this slight glimmer of hope ends here for now. Take a look with me at verse 13. Again, Philistia and Egypt stand as a witness against Israel, but this time for their idolatry. Here the prophet uses this incredibly long and beautiful descriptive name of God. He calls him Adonai Yahweh Elohim Sabaot, the Lord God Almighty of the heavenly armies. It is the longest, most descriptive name of God given in all of Scripture, and it only occurs here. And so why does he do this? Why does he pile on the names of God one on top of another? Well, he is highlighting that the one true God, the sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient God of all the earth is at war with Israel. There is nowhere you can run and hide, Israel, because I am at war with you. Now, this is clearly seen in God's commands to these pagan nations. They live without a care or thought of the one true God, and yet he simply calls them as a summons against Israel, and they are compelled to obey. They show us what they're going to be a witness to. And it's not simply Israel's own self-destruction, but the destruction that will come as a result of judgment. 
Israel's idols of the hearts will be destroyed. They're going to be rendered powerless. They will see that nothing can save them apart from God. But the first idol to be destroyed is the houses of false worship in verse 14. I want you to notice there's a clear reference to the horns of the altar being cut off and falling to the ground. And what he's doing here is describing in the ancient Near East, horns were a symbol of strength and power of the God. What he's saying is that these horns will be cut off and the God will be powerless. And yet at the same time, the horns of an altar were a place where people could come and place their hands in the horns and claim asylum. Think about that. The horns of the altar will be cut off. They will run with a breakneck speed to try and find asylum from the judgment that is to come. And when they go, they will have no place to put their hands. They will be utterly consumed and cut off, every last one of them. The second idol to be destroyed was their wealth, which we can see in verse 15. Again, it depicts these massive summer and winter homes. They are filled with ivory. And so the picture is just complete affluence. It's an even more hard knock against them for their oppression of the poor. But the point here is that even their wealth would not save them on the day of judgment. In all of this, you can really see the deception that they had to buy into to think that on that day, these houses of idols, these massive homes are going to save them from the God of this universe. Again, behind all of it, they don't believe they are as bad as God says they are. They look at nations like Egypt, they look at the Philistines, and they perhaps think that compared to these guys, we're not all that bad. And yet God says to Israel, on the contrary, you are far, far worse. They're utterly deceived. They think they can serve two masters And all they have done is simply prove that they have one master, and that master is Satan. And if I'm going to be brutally honest again, if you look at this world and you think that you are any better than them, and yet you practice the same things that are worthy of death, as Paul would put in the book of Romans, if you place your hope in the same things that they hope in, if you love the same things that you love, you are no better than them. That only makes you doubly deceived because God has given you the truth of these things. You and I of all people know that we cannot serve two masters. And how hard do you fight to try? We know that Christ demands all of our love. And yet how hard do you fight to try and give your love to something else? We know that he will not yield his glory to the gods of our own concoctions. We know that he is a jealous God. He will not allow our affections to go elsewhere. And yet, how often do we tear a piece of our heart and give it away to that which deserves none of it? Now, if you want to know where your affections are, simply ask yourself, where do you spend your time, money, and energy? Do you spend your time, money, and energy on things like building your legacy, building your name, Perhaps putting more money in the bank. Perhaps being an inordinate lover of pleasure. Maybe you indulge your flesh by chasing after things like much food and drink or even adultery. Or perhaps you think, maybe I'm not as bad as the guy who's literally going in fornicating. I just pull it up on my phone. Know this. If you think that while you pursue these things that you can have them and Christ, you are deceived. 
If you pursue these things and think that you're better than the world, you are doubly deceived. And if you think that for a moment these things will keep you safe, when Scripture has promised over and over and over again that they will fail you on the day of God's wrath, you are woefully deceived. That's the second mark of one who is deceived. They do not have a right assessment of themselves. They serve two masters, their affections are split, and they think out of all people, they can pull it off. The first mark of the deceived is that they presume always they're in God's good graces. You see how they hinge. Second, they do not perceive themselves correctly. The third is that you lead a double life. Now, Amos calls out two aspects in chapter 4 here, so look with me. He focuses first on the women of Israel, and then he broadens his attention to the whole nation once again. Again, take a look at me, or with me at verse 1. Amos writes, Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who exploit the poor, who oppress the needy, and say to their husbands, Bring now that we may drink. Now, to give you some context to that, Bashan is this incredibly luxuriant region that's not too far off from Galilee. It's a wonderfully rich land. The cows had open pastures that could feed to their heart's content, and so as a result, they'd eat plenty of grass and just grow fat. Now, put two and two together here for a second. Amos is addressing the women of Israel by calling them essentially fat cows. Now, the reason he does this is incredibly simple. They oppress the poor, they oppress the needy, they treat their husbands as if they are their own personal slaves, and all of it to live a life of affluence and luxury. Now, the imagery being used here is that these women of Samaria are these spoiled, lazy, engorged women who rule the roost, and as a result, the poor and the marginalized of the entire state are exploited. Now, the interesting thing here is that the term husband is actually, again, better translated as lord or master, and he's using this ironically. There's no real spousal relationship. He's using it to illustrate how much the roles have actually been reversed here. And so what you see is just the curse in Genesis 3 playing out before your very eyes. The woman seeks to usurp the place of her husband. She demands of him, and he goes and does. In other words... They're not simply unsubmissive wives. They don't simply ignore their husbands and don't listen. They actually command their husbands. And the husbands then bend to every single whim of their wives. On the one hand, you have women who are just these selfish cows, as Amos puts it, again. And then you have their husbands who are spineless cowards. And yet both of them are incredibly wicked in their sin. What I want you to notice is the blatant sham of a marriage they actually have. But it's a sham that bears consequences to every other relationship they have. It bears consequences to people who are not even part of that relationship. Think about it. How do you go from a wife that doesn't submit and a husband that does not lead to then oppressing the poor and the marginalized in your society? The point I'm making, and I really don't want you to miss it, is that this sin always plays out in other relationships. You cannot separate it. As much as you think that unsubmissiveness and refusal to lead can be contained between the two of you, it will always bubble out. Think of how it will just bubble out with your kids. What will they see? 
Not only because of your example will the marriage be twisted, but they will have a portrayal of the Christian faith that is skewed as well. Marriage is a picture of the union Christ has with his church. If the marriage is not functioning in the way that God has ordained it to function, if the women rule the roost and the men do not even love their wives enough to lead, do you really think that the relationship with Christ that you portray will reflect any differently? Your marriage shows what you believe about the gospel. Your marriage shows especially what you believe about the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. I say that because the same is revealed here of the Israelites. Their marriages revealed what they believed about God and his relationship with Israel. They were willing to crush the bride of God. That unbelief poured out on their brothers and sisters in an incredibly grotesque and twisted way that should have never been. But then notice what comes of it again in verses 2 through 3 here of chapter 4. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Notice the certainty. Again, notice the finality of it. The interesting thing is that these things are grounded in God's holiness, his set-apartness, if you will. Now, it's a little difficult to convey the meaning or thought behind it, but by swearing by his own holiness, he's alluding to the covenant that he has sworn with Israel. And therefore, he's amplifying the certainty of their judgment all the more. Now, what I mean by this, again, is that Israel is this nation. They are called to be set apart. They are called to be holy on the basis of God's own holiness. Just like we saw in chapter 3, God dealt with them in an utterly unique way. He gave them the law, the prophets, the kings, the priests, the land, and every bit of it testified to the fact that they were called out and set apart for God. They were treated differently because God gave them a covenant that was different than any other people. They were held to a higher standard because that covenant held them to a higher standard. And so God's judgment is all the more fixed and brutal on them for the same reasons. They were to be set apart. In the same way you just saw in chapter 3, they reap what they sow. They want to live like cows, they will be treated as cows. In keeping with the metaphor, Amos proclaims that they're going to be carried off with meat hooks like a butcher carries beef. Like a fisherman strings up a catch of fish, they're going to be carted off into exile and slavery one by one on a string. Now, interestingly enough, the Assyrians, there's archaeological digs that actually found murals from the Assyrians where they depict slaves being led off one by one in a long line with a rope that connects a ring to the jaw. I tell you this because I want you to understand this is not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating the judgment that's going to come. And yet, God's judgment doesn't even stop here, does it? We have plenty more to go. Amos continues in verses 4 and 5 by giving them a series of commands. And his commands is that they go and make sacrifices. Again, he's dripping with sarcasm and irony here. He says, go and multiply your sins. And the reason he does this is simply because that they are so corrupt and the priestly service is so corrupt that no matter what's going to be produced of that action, it's just going to be more and more sin. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning. Offer your tithes every three days. 
Now, according to the law, the tithes were only to be offered every three years. And so essentially what he's saying is, throw everything you have at the sacrificial system, it will not be enough. Go ahead, do all the more. Let the river of blood flow continually from the altar. Let your tithes spill from the temple. All it's going to do is multiply your sins. And then in verse 5, he commands him, give your peace offerings. Give your free will offerings. Again, both of these are designed to show thanksgiving and gratitude towards God. Not only for the material blessings that he has given them, but the spiritual blessings they have as unique people. Again, he's dripping with sarcasm here. Go ahead, Israel. Bring your offering to the altar. Show your thanks to God. All it's going to do is reveal your heart of hypocrisy. Israel loved their display of religiosity. Look again at verse 5. This is the death blow. For you love to do so, you sons of Israel. They loved every bit of it. These were people who made a spectacle of themselves and what they did before other men. They loved to be seen as the godly ones, as the righteous ones, and yet they were, to borrow a phrase from Christ himself, whitewashed tombs. To bring this all the more close to home, if Amos were in the church today and he was addressing the hypocrite in our midst, he would tell them, go ahead. Come to church every Sunday. Give your offerings. In fact, give in abundance. Let Throw as much as you can at the offering plate. Give your time, give your talents, give your service, all of it to the church. All you're going to do is multiply your sins. That should be a terrifying word to us. That should stop us in our tracks to check our hearts and our motivations at all times. You and I, of all people, are a people who love to hear expositional preaching. We love to feel even conviction, but if those things never lead us to repentance and faith in Christ, we are damned in our seats. We are damned in our seats. We can hear a plea to turn to God each and every single week for the rest of our lives. And yet if we do not actually love God, we will be proven hypocrites. And at the end, the evidence of this will be the same exact thing we see in verses 6 through 11. Notice that Amos gives seven different punishments that comes upon them as a result of their own covenant unfaithfulness. Now, if you're caught up in the Bible reading plan, you actually just saw this in Leviticus 26. God promised the same thing that Amos tells them here. He says, I'm going to punish you seven times over if you refuse to listen to me and repent. He tells them plainly, I will not walk with you. I will destroy your places of false worship. I will pile your dead bodies on the lifeless idols. I will turn your cities to rubble. I will lay waste to all the land. I will scatter you among the nations and send a sword to devour you. And I will put fear into your heart so that the stirring of the leaves causes you to flee in terror. In other words, you're going to take flight though no one pursues you. (laughs) Now that description matches this one pretty much identically, doesn't it? Notice in verse 6, he says, God gave them a cleanness of teeth and a lack of bread. And he's not talking about dental problems here. He's simply saying that they had nothing to eat. But then notice the kicker. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
Verses 7 and 8, God withheld the rain for three months right before the harvest. This would devastate the crops. He caused rain to fall on one city and then not another, so they could clearly see that this was from his hand. They could not reject it. They would stagger from one city that's in drought to the next where they could get some water, and yet they would never be satisfied because they would be continually thirsty. And here's the kicker. Yet you did not return to the Lord. Verse 9, he struck them with scorching wind and mildew. The insects devour their crops, and yet they did not return to the Lord. Verse 10, he sends a plague among them, gives them over to warfare, so much so that the stench of the dead bodies just simply fills the air, and yet they did not return to Yahweh. Verse 11, God overthrows them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. They barely escape, being utterly destroyed by fire and brimstone, and yet they did not return to the Lord. The Israelites experienced discipline over and over and over again, and yet they would not repent. They were a stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious people every single step of the way. And if you read the Old Testament, you see this over and again with them. God sends famine, drought, pestilence, swarms of insects, plague, warfare, even fire and brimstone, and through all of it, they do not return to the Lord. A time after time, they see the discipline of God, and even though they suffer under all of these things, they do not return. In a word, the only thing you could be to go through all of that and not repent is deceived. They believed things were fine. They presumed they were in the good graces of God. They thought more highly of themselves than any other nation. And yet they were hypocritical and stubborn people. At the same time, think of what this actually reveals about the God you and I serve. They destroyed themselves, right? They deserved every bit of what they got. And yet in spite of all of their flagrant rebellion year after year, God gives them ample time to repent. Even now, even in this incredibly hard and bleak punishment that he's saying is going to happen, he's saying, repent, Israel. God is giving them even more time to repent. He doesn't have to. But he's giving them a warning of what will come, that final judgment that is to come if they do not return. Now, this is what we turn our attention to in the final two verses here. Again, we see the final indication of the one who is deceived. Now, the final mark of the one who is deceived, they believe they are ready to meet their maker when they are not. Verses 12 and 13. Notice in verse 12, the prophet tells him, again, therefore, that is, for this reason, and that reason is because they did not repent, they did not return to the Lord, I will do this to you. Notice he doesn't tell them what this is. There's no real clarity of what that punishment is at this point, and it's all the more frightening if you think about it. They know that if they fail to repent and turn to God, he has only promised further judgment. They know that things are going to go from bad to worse. They are stuck in a position, no matter what they try to do of themselves, they're going to simply be in more and more sin, right? If they offer more sacrifices, if they try to make an atonement for their sin, God says, I'm going to use that to multiply your sins, 
And so the only thing that they can do in order to be right with God and avoid final judgment is that they must repent. They must simply agree with God and his ways. They must walk with him once again in covenant faithfulness. They must stop defending the indefensible and excusing it away. They must embrace godly sorrow. They must change their course lest they be condemned and face eternal judgment because that's what's actually at stake here. It's not any longer about these temporal hardships for them. Again, look down again at verse 12. They must prepare to meet their God. But the problem is that those who deceive themselves always end up thinking that they are going to be fine when that day comes. They can hear a call for repentance, and every single time what comes to mind is how badly somebody else needs to hear that. They listen to sermons with someone else in mind. They read a thousand books on how to be a better spouse, parent, worker, evangelist, or Christian, and yet they never end up being any of those things. They ask for counsel only to reject it when they hear faithful counsel. Why? Because in a word, they are deceived. Now, those who are not deceived hear the hard words of God, and they actually heed the warning. They constantly examine their hearts. They constantly examine their motives because they want to honor God. They see their sin and hate it. They're not going to indulge it. They're not going to conceal it. They're not going to give an outward of appearance of righteousness or repentance, meaning they're not going to just put on a show for everybody else to see so they can get off their back. In other words, they actually turn back to God and walk with him as much as they might struggle to do so. Now, they do so for the same reasons that Amos tells us here in verse 13. Again, look once again at your Bibles. See the sovereign Lord who is worthy to judge the hearts of all men. The prophet says, for behold, that is, stop. Look at your creator. Behold him. He is the one who forms the mountains. He creates the winds. He declares to a person what are his thoughts, meaning God's own thoughts. He reveals himself, his revealed will. He makes the dawn to darkness and walks upon the high places of the earth. The Lord God of armies is his name. In other words, he created everything in existence. He has power over every aspect of creation. He exercises that power however he sees fit. He revealed himself to mankind, but especially Israel. He turns the hope of the dawn to dread to usher in the night as they are just waiting for relief. He stands over all the earth. He sees everything before him. There is nothing hidden from his sight. This God, the Lord God of armies, is his name. All the armies of the heavens and the earth are at his disposal. Prepare yourself, Israel. You are at war with God. This is perhaps the verse that reveals the most about the one who is deceived because all forms of deception ultimately terminate here. They lead here. The one who believes they can fool God. They know in their heart of hearts, he sees all and knows all. And yet they think they can hide from God. Beloved, you can fool your spouse, you can fool your friends, you can fool your children, you can even fool your pastors and elders. But the one you cannot fool is the one who sees all, knows all, and created all. 
you can put on an incredible show for people. And if you're really good at it, you can actually get them to believe you're a godly person. But if you are deceived, the only one you're deceiving in the end is yourself. If you are the one who is deceived, will you not just agree with God? You are a sinner. Things are as bad as he says they are in his word. Will you not just acknowledge who you are, and I I mean who you really are, not just the person who comes on a Sunday morning with a smile and a handshake, but the person that nobody else knows? Will you not let go of the stubbornness and the pride and the justification for sin? Beloved, will you not just return to him? So the question we have to ask is, where do we go from here? How do we tie all of this together? How do we know if we are the one who is deceived? Because we desperately want to know that, do we not? Well, to make it as simple as possible, if you are finding yourself described here today, especially if you check all four of those boxes, you are the one who is deceived. If you never examine your ways before God, if you hate the sins in others more than your own sins, you are deceived. If you lead a double life, that is, you come to church on Sunday and you're one person and the rest of the week you're somebody else, you are deceived. If you're trying to serve two masters, you are deceived. Whether that's God in sex, God in money, God in fill in the blank, you cannot have two masters. If you think that you can somehow justify yourself at the end of all of that, you're deceived. Now, the reality is that whether you claim to be a Christian or not, there is a profound warning for each and every one of us today. One day, you and I will stand before our Maker. We will have to give an account for every waking moment of our lives. The secret things will be revealed. That which is hidden will be brought to light. Our hearts will be laid bare before him. Every idle word will be recalled. The thoughts, the intentions of our thoughts will be brought to bear. And in every bit of it, we will be without excuse. Now, you can be one of two people that hears this warning today. One of two people. That's it. Don't fool yourselves into thinking there's a third choice because there's not. You can be the person who deceives themselves. You can think that all the while you remain unrepentant, that you put it off for another day, that you are still in God's good graces and that he is owing you more time. You can think more highly of yourself than everybody else around you and never come to the grips with the fact that God calls you to repentance and faith. You can remain stiff-necked. You can be a hypocrite all the days of your life. You can even pretend as if on that day you will stand before him face to face that you will have a rationale to give, that you will be ready. Or, and this is the person I, I honestly beg you to be, I beg you to be this person. You can be the person who proves themselves to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only who deceives himself. You can hear the warnings. You can examine your life. You can recognize there is no such thing as coasting in the Christian life. You're either actively resisting sin or fighting it, or you're not. You are either in the battle or you're not. You are either running the race or you're not. You are either walking with God or you're not. There's no middle ground for slaves. 
But in all of it, if you are going to stand before God and pretend as if your own merit is what's going to win his affections for you and give you grace, you are deceived. You must stand before him as one who beats their breast and says, Lo, I am a sinner. Father, forgive me. That is the only way you will stand before him in a manner in which you will not only be utterly pleased with everything that you stand to inherit, but that you will be cleansed of your sin and that the scales of deception will be pulled from your eyes and that you will see him as you have never seen him before. Beloved, these things were written for our instruction. They're written to be a warning for us of what many others before us have gone into. They have claimed one thing and shown their lives to be an utterly different thing. Each and every one of us must daily come to the cross of Christ and recognize we are the chief of sinners. And in a recognition of that, we must live a life that is consistent with that profession of hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we we do thank you that though this is an incredibly hard word, that your grace is sufficient, that your spirit has not only given us the scriptures that we might know how we can relate to you correctly, that we can know Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can know that through him we have forgiveness of sins, but that your spirit has empowered us to walk in these things. I pray that we would never be the Christian who coasts. We would never be idle in our walk. We'd always and ever be more searching for sin that we might root it out. Not because we believe that somehow in our rooting out of sin that we are guaranteeing our salvation, but ultimately that we know that it has no place in our heart. You have given us your son. We must have no other affections before him. I pray now that you would continue to work within our hearts to bring us to Christ's likeness, that we might not be as Israel was, that we could be a people who hear summons to repent and do so each and every time, recognizing that though it is difficult, that though we might be in one sense turning around as a cruise ship, taking days, months, years, and an incredible slog to do so, that it is nonetheless a turning And that you have granted us repentance through your spirit, if that is a desire of our hearts. I pray now that as you send these people home this week, that you will continue to give them grace. You will continue to show them your mercy. You will continue to bring the word to bear in their hearts and minds. That they might not only walk in a worthy manner, the profession of faith that they claim, but that those who do not know you would come to actually come before you as a sinner, in recognition of the fact that beyond your grace, there is nothing. We pray all these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.